please stand with us in honor of the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. And beginning in verse 13, the Holy Scriptures read, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we come before you and we ask what we always ask, which is that you would be our teacher through your spirit. Father, help us today to examine ourselves, to see if whether or not we have truly picked up our cross to follow Christ. Father, we don't want to forfeit, the, forfeit our soul to gain the whole world. So we ask, Lord, that we would, by grace, through the faith, through your power, that we would trust in Jesus and follow after him, as you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. That's not what that's made for is a common expression that we've all heard many times and probably have even said ourselves. However, we are all guilty at the same time of having used something for its wrong use. For example here, when it comes to ovens, despite the common understanding that the small bottom drawer on the oven is meant to pack in 300 pots and pans, it's... (laughs) actually not made for that at all. It's actually a warming drawer to keep your brownies and your muffins and your bread warm. And yet, despite its intended purpose, some of you look shocked, uh, most people today use it to store so many bulky pans that you basically need the jaws of life to open that drawer. It's a terrible and ridiculous thing. Another common misuse is a little device that we all have in our cars called the glove box which has everything and anything in it but a glove box, or but gloves, I should say. It's full of uh, napkins, we should probably call it the napkin box, Uh, little ketchup packets that have been in there for about 40 years, uh, and things like that. So speaking of ketchup, there's another thing that many people don't know is that the little ketchup packets, that, you know, those little circle ones, uh, they actually are made to hold more ketchup than just three french fries worth. How, you ask? Well, I will tell you, you look Very intrigued. Uh, By using them rightly, of course. And how do you use them rightly? (laughs) Ta-da! And this is remarkable because I use a lot of ketchup, and so I found that if you do this, you can go from needing 90 of those to only 9. And so 
It's, it's really a great use of the ketchup cups. And so when it comes to using products wrongly or not to their full potential, whether that be the outside plastic bag hangers on the grocery cart, whether that be using a sink plunger as a toilet plunger, you know who you are, or not using the spoon holders that are meant, that are built into our saucepans to hold the spoons, we are all guilty of using something incorrectly for the wrong purpose. And so, too, does this also go for the church. And when we misuse the church for its wrong purpose or don't use the church for its intended use, uh, it's an infinitely more serious thing than getting some soup on your stove. See, when it comes to the church, a whole lot of people out there, most actually we might say today, don't understand the purpose of the church. They don't understand what it's actually for. For example, many people will to say that the church exists to help the needy. And certainly that's a good thing, right? And so we need to have soup kitchens, food drives, homeless shelters, things like that. But is that the purpose of the church? No. Those are certainly good things, but that is not what the church is for. Some people say that the church exists to satisfy felt needs, whether that be emotional needs or that be physical needs, relational needs, whatever. But again, that too, none of those are what the church is for. The church does not exist to satisfy your felt needs. And if you think it does, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to be severely disappointed all the time because there aren't people just rushing to you to meet your felt needs the second you walk in the door, or you're going to leave that kind of a church and go find a church where a bunch of people decide, hey, let's make church about felt needs. One of the two things are going to happen. And if you do that, you're going to seriously misunderstand the purpose of the church, and consequently, you are going to miss out in a serious way, in a big, life-changing way. You will completely miss the benefits of embracing the church's true purpose. So then, we want to have our churches follow their design purpose, right? Well, how do we figure out what that is? By taking a vote? No. By doing surveys to find out what people want in a church. That's the problem. If we could just do surveys, find out what people are looking for, and we could just be sensitive to these seekers who want to find a good church, well, hey, then we could find out the purpose of the church. Or do we find it by looking at current cultural trends to see what works and what doesn't? Well, the answer to all that is no, clearly not. And so we find out the true purpose of the church one way, by listening to the instructions of the person who created it. And that actually makes sense, right? Because after all, if he made it, then certainly he's going to know what it's for, not the rest of us. And so in our passage this morning, we find the church's purpose, and that purpose is crystal clear. And so consequently, if we want to be a church that is effective in fulfilling our God-given purpose, then we need to pay attention. We need to listen up to what this text says. And this text tells us three things, and here they are. To be a purpose-driven church, we must embrace Christ's identity, Christ's mission, and third, Christ's return. If you have your Bibles, open, me, open with me, if you would, to Matthew 16. And we're not gonna, we don't put the passage we're in up on the slide, so you'll need to open there to follow along. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 17 for us. Again, I'll give you a second to open to it. Beginning in verse 13, it reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So far in our study throughout the book of Matthew, we've seen the disciples in a pretty dim light. We could say a dim-witted light, actually, because they continually get stuff wrong over and over and over. Jesus comes to them, he feeds the 5,000, and then a few seconds later, they're with another crowd, and they're like, how are we going to feed them? What are we going to do? I don't know what's going to happen here. Like, over and over, they continually miss the mark. 
but here, a little light begins to shine through as Peter makes a profound recognition. And what is that recognition? It's about who Jesus is. Is he a prophet like Elijah or Jeremiah? In a sense, a little bit, but ultimately, no. He's totally different than the old prophets. Is he just a miracle worker who performs his deeds somehow with tricks of some kind? No. Or, as the Pharisees said, is he actually doing miracles, but he's doing them by the power of the devil himself? That's what they charged him back in Matthew 12. Is that who Jesus is? No. Well, then who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that, my friends, is the most important question in this side of eternity. Who is Jesus? And there's a lot of answers out there to that question. The Mormons, what they're going to tell you? They're going to say, you know, Jesus is God. He's God. But hold on. He's not the God. He's a God. Well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible now, is it? Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that Jesus is the highest of the created beings. He's the highest of the angels. Atheists will tell you that Jesus either didn't exist at all, or if he did, things got twisted through legend, all sorts of, you know, things got passed down. It's kind of a game of telephone. Who knows really who Jesus was? But one thing we're pretty certain of is Jesus had this religious movement, and he ticked off Rome, who came in and stomped him and snuffed him out with his boot, with their boots. Our society will tell us that Jesus, you know who he was? He was a really good teacher. I mean, he's up there with like Gandhi and Buddha. Like, I mean, you know, all these guys, like he's got some wisdom. I mean, yes, he didn't get everything right, but we should probably pay attention to at least some of the stuff, you know, about turning the other cheek, loving our neighbor as ourself. That's pretty good. I like that. But the other stuff, we'll ignore that. But overall, he was, he was a pretty good teacher. And there's another option, which is Peter's option. And what does Peter profess of who Jesus is? He says he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the question for us this morning is, who do you say that Jesus is? And, as we're going to get to a little bit later, who do your actions say that Jesus is? Because, you know the whole expression, actions speak louder than words? They certainly do, and that's kind of where Jesus goes with this a little bit later in this passage. Now, that question, who do we say Jesus says, I realize that I'm asking that to a church, uh, but that's a question that, you know, the question and answer we can't take for granted anymore. Why not? I just saw a recent study, and I think it's actually a little bit outdated. It's probably higher than this now. But it said that over 30%, not of professing Christians, but 30% of professing evangelical Christians deny the deity of Christ. That's remarkable. That means at minimum, 30% of the people who walk into the walls of a church are unbelievers. They are lost in their sins and they are headed towards an eternity of judgment. 30%. And that number is probably lower than what it actually is now. It's remarkable. Outside of that, another study showed that 52% of Americans believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but nah, he wasn't God. But here's the thing. If Jesus wasn't God, if we just conclude he was a good teacher, maybe he was sent, maybe he was a prophet, he was sent by God. If we conclude that, then we have a problem. Because one, we're completely ignoring the things that Jesus said. Because if Jesus was just a good teacher, he wouldn't have said all the things that he said. In fact, if Jesus wasn't God, then what he told us was wicked. Like, he's a sick person for saying the things he said. He said, if you follow me, though they slay you, I will raise you up on the last day. And if he can't deliver on that promise, what are we even doing here today? Pack it up. Grab your keys. Let's go. As Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if he's not truly the Son of God, then we should be pitied more than all men. C.S. Lewis, here's a brilliant quote by C.S. Lewis. Here's what he says about this, and he unpacks this for in a way I think that's really helpful. Here's what he said. I'm trying to prevent anyone here from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Well, that's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, as Peter did. And let us not come, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it to. And so this right here, this issue of who was Jesus, really does matter. Like, it it ultimately matters. For if Jesus was not, as the Nicene Creed, which goes back to like 325 AD, rightly said, if Jesus was not the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, not one of many begottens, right, as Mormons will tell us, no, the only begotten of the Father, that is of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and on the third day he rose and ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And it's almost like they pulled most of that right from this passage here, isn't it? If Jesus is not that, you're still in your sins. I'm still in my sins. Our salvation is not guaranteed. For we are dead in our sins and we are marching towards the internal wrath of an all-powerful, angry, fierce God in a place called hell. So yes, this question absolutely matters, church. For without this creed, without Jesus being fully God, as we said a moment ago, our faith is in vain and we should be pitied above all men. But uh, if we read in 1 Corinthians 15, also it tells us about how Jesus was God. And people were eyewitness to his life and, and and the evidence that he was, right? According to the eyewitness accounts, which in that passage tell us includes who? Peter, it includes the 12, and more than 500 other people who saw the risen Christ. They saw that Jesus was truly who he said he was. And how do we know that Jesus was truly who he said he was? Lots of reasons we don't have time to go into before, but one, the grave was empty. And this wasn't just a legend that passed down over the years. See, C.S. Lewis broke it down into saying either Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Make your choice. Well, there's a fourth option today that's very popular, and it's that Jesus was a legend, right? The game of telephone, they passed it down. Things get exaggerated. First the fish was this big, then it was this big, you know, that kind of thing. There's a problem with that. We have firsthand eyewitnesses who lived and saw Jesus live his life in ministry, do the miracles he did, die on a cross, and rise from the dead. And let me ask you a question. Why on earth would 11 of the 12 disciples die for something they knew wasn't true? See, you think today, right, like there's, we have suicide bombers and things like that. Well, certainly they believe what they believe, right? Does that prove that what they believe is true? Well, it's a totally different thing. Why? Because they're not in a position to ultimately know and have seen with their eyes the things that they claim to believe in. But the disciples did. They saw. They were able to verify. They weren't going like we are today off the trusted accounts of others. And so the question is, if the grave was not empty, why would they completely turn their religion upside down? This was a religion that had no room at all for the idea of a man being God. That would be like me going to the Middle East today, right? Or a woman actually going to the Middle East today and, and start saying, hey, you know who, you know who uh, Allah is? Well, Allah is actually female, and start saying all these really offensive things that would probably get him killed pretty fast, and then starting a religion out of that. The number one greatest religion in the world. That's what it would be like. So the question is, if the grave wasn't empty, then who was Jesus? And we all have to answer this question. Well, for me, and many of us here today, we conclude that Jesus is who he said he was, because the grave was empty, and all of the evidence, the eyewitnesses' accounts, they were so convinced that Jesus was who he said he was based upon what they saw, that they were willing to give everything for following him. They were willing to lay down their lives. They were willing to lay down their cross or pick up their cross and follow him. And many of them did, as Peter eventually did, had to pick up an actual cross. As church history tells us, Peter was crucified upside down as he didn't want to die in the same manner of his Lord. He thought that would be irreverent. And so they turned it upside down. Why would they do this 
if Jesus was just a good teacher? Are they nuts? No, they're not nuts. They did this because they, they were convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead and his offer to all those who would trust in his name to that, so that they too might rise from the dead was, was legitimate. So Peter here says, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And upon that declaration, upon that right understanding of who Jesus was, Jesus then turns after Peter says, Jesus, this is who you are. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, right, now let me tell you who you are. And then that explanation, he says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why not? Because Christ's church is not a place, but a people. We're meeting in what we call a church, but here's the reality. This isn't a church. This is a building. It's a building where the church meets. And what is the church? All those who, like Peter, have professed faith in Jesus' name, in the living Son of God, in the Christ, which Christ means the Messiah. But not only that, not only does the church see Jesus' true identity, but they go on to see and understand and follow his great mission, which leads us to our second point. Look at verse 18 with me. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates, this is a bad translation, so I'm going to fix it, and the gates of Hades, not hell, shall prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's an interesting thing, right? Like they figured out, shh, don't tell Getting ahead of myself. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me or a stumbling block. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? My, oh my. I don't know whose idea it was to take this many verses with this much stuff packed into it, but I don't like that guy right now. There's a lot of things going on in this text, isn't there? Well, why did I, that guy be me? Why did we take all this at once? Certainly we could have broken it up and looked closely at it, but my, my concern was that we would get so focused on the nitty-gritty details that we wouldn't be able to step back over three to four weeks and see the big picture. So, with that said, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's binding and loosing. There's keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's your Peter and this rock. Well, what's the rock? There's the part where he says, tell nobody I'm the Christ. There's the part that's very controversial to us that says, pick up your cross and follow me, because if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Well, that sounds like works-based salvation. What's going on in this text? A lot of things are going on in this text. So if we're going to do all this in one go, I've got to give you a quick warning here, which is that for about five to seven minutes, if we're going to get through and explain what these things are, you're going to have to drink from a fire hose for a little bit. So I will do my best to keep the pressure down on said fire hose, uh, but you're going to need to try to do your absolute best, put on your thinking caps, uh, and silence your phones if you haven't already, and stick with me here. All right. We have to break down each one of these first, okay, so I have to do a lot of teaching right now, okay, we have to break down each one of these things first to see what's going on in this text, all right, so first off, let's start with the rock. What's the rock? It's not Dwayne Johnson, okay, not, nothing to do with that. What is the rock? It's Peter is an option, okay, that's one option. The second option is that it could be Peter's confession, or the third option is the rock could be Christ. All right, these are the three main interpretive ways to understand this text. All right, so with that said, uh, is Peter the rock? Is he the foundation of the church that Christ built upon? 
Now, in the Greek, we've got Peter's name, which is Petros. And this was not a common name. It is today, since Peter, but it means rock. Okay, Jesus renamed Peter to rock, or renamed Peter and gave him the name Peter. It was Simon Peter, and he gave him Peter. Peter wasn't a last name, okay? He gave him the name Peter, which means rock, all right? So basically, we could say Peter's name was Rocky, right? Not Balboa, just rock, the rock, right? It's what Peter means. So it could be that, and this, I think I can explain this in a way that makes sense. It could be that Jesus is not saying, Peter, you're the literal rock upon which all of this Christian thing, the church, is going to be built. He could be doing some clever wordplay, which is basically saying, hey, Peter, you know how we named you, the ro- named you rock? Well, upon this rock, that confession he just made, right, I'm going to build my church. You see the wordplay there that's going on? Upon this rock, Peter, I'm going to build my church. The profession of faith, he's using his name, basically his wordplay to make the point. So that's a very valid interpretation of what might be happening in this text. And if that's the case, well, that means several things. Well, actually, each one of these ones means several things, which is, one, there's no popes. Peter's not the pope. This text, if you look at this text at face value, speaks nothing of Peter being the vicar of Christ. It speaks nothing of Peter being the first pope, which is then handed down and handed down and handed down and handed down. So I'll say one day we've got like four popes, and we don't know which one it is, which happened in church history. Check it out. It's a funny story. Uh, But the point is, none of that is in this text. Not even a little bit. And that that is the proof text for all of what I just described. None of that's in this passage whatsoever. Now, grammatically, and I'm going to spare you the details on this, but it could be that Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock, and upon that rock, I will build my church. That's a valid interpretation. And one of the reasons that us people who are, we're not Protestant, but let's say we are for argument's sake here. Baptists aren't Protestant, we didn't need to be Reformed, whatever. Anyways, the point being, right, one of the reasons that Protestants don't like that interpretation is because of what a certain group has done with Peter making him the vicar of Christ. So anytime something comes up that smells like they're saying, hey, Peter's the Pope, it's like, no, 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 that can't be the interpretation. Okay, well, we don't need to do that. This is a valid interpretation, and we don't, and if it's the right interpretation, we don't need to take it to all that other stuff. It's not in the text, and even if we conclude Peter is the rock, that doesn't lead to all that stuff. So this is a valid interpretation. However, only if we qualify it to make it clear that something, something that is very, very important. If Peter is the rock, then why did we just sing about Jesus Christ being the solid rock a moment ago? Well, we have to say that Jesus is making an allegory, a picture for us of what he's doing. And Peter is not, even if he's the rock in this passage, Peter's not the rock that takes Jesus' place. Make sense? Okay? We can't conclude that. Jesus can't be taking Jesus' position. There's only one true foundation, one firm foundation, and it's not Peter. Peter's not our Savior. Christ is. Let me show you this in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's not Peter. Jesus Christ is the foundation that is laid. And in Acts 4, this is interesting because Peter himself, he recognizes this when he in that passage speaks of Jesus being the cornerstone of our faith. And all this is brought perfectly together for us in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read these three verses here. Four verses here. But you are a fellow citizen with saints and members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, so this passage is really clear. Like, this pulls it all together, I think. Okay, so with this in mind, the answer to our question could actually be D, all the above, couldn't it? Right? If we nuance it properly, I think it can. Why? Well, Jesus is the rock or the cornerstone, as Ephesians Ephesians talks about here, of that foundation upon which the rest of the little rocks, like Peter, like Paul, like Matthew, like everyone here today who eventually fits into this, 
right? So it starts with the cornerstone. Out comes these little rocks which build the foundation. That's what we have in Ephesians chapter 2 here. And today, all those who profess faith like Peter did are built upon that foundation. And today, if you profess faith in Christ, you're part of the ceiling. And this whole thing's almost finished because Christ is going to come back extremely soon. It's a remarkable thing. Praise God, right? So, that's the rock stuff. Is that clear? All right. Talk about it in our Q&A time, too, if you have questions. Okay, so what about the keys of the kingdom, this binding and loosing stuff? Uh, is that saying, like, we can bind Satan? I bind you, Satan, like all these TV preachers do. Is that what that's talking about? Not even a little bit. Uh, Jude says that even Michael the archangel wouldn't offer a blasphemous rebuke against Satan. He just left it to the Lord. And yet we, who are much weaker than angels, think we can bind Satan? It's ridiculous. We cannot bind Satan. That's not what this is talking about. So what's it talking about? All right, here's the super short version. There are two right ways to understand this, and I'm not totally sure, like with the rock thing, like which one it exactly is, but you know the nice thing is? Even if we choose one or the other, we still get the right answer. It's like on a math test, you know, I've done this before where you don't do the work properly, but you still get the right answer. It's kind of like that. So it's not like the end of the world if you get it wrong there, okay? Because both of these options are actually biblically true. Okay, so one, the keys and the buy and loosing, this is actually referring to the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. That's one option, okay? The second option is it's referring to the early church, the launch of the early church as found in the book of Acts. So which one is it? Well, I don't know. But like with the rock options, as we said, all of them are right. Now, the first one, it could be speaking of the millennium because we know something and we know from a little bit later in Matthew that the apostles are going to be doing just this in the millennium. Look at this. We'll be at this. Oh, wait, where do we go here? Yeah, here it is. Matthew 19. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on this glorious throne, that's the millennial reign of Christ, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is in other passages too. This isn't just a one-off one. This is in Revelation as well. And during this time, they're going to literally have the keys of the kingdom. Yes, Christ will be ruling and reigning and fulfilling all the Old Testament prophets of the son of David who would come and sit upon the throne and rule perfectly with a rod of iron. Read Psalm 2 if you're interested in knowing what that looks like. But the buying and loosing will be happening. The tying and untying will be happening in that time. That's what this passage tells us. Well, is that what Matthew's talking about here, what Jesus is speaking of in, in Matthew 16? I'm not totally sure. Okay. Another thing about that, and this is actually even more shocking, is you and I, believers of Christ, will be doing some of this ourselves in the millennial reign of Christ. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? I don't have time to unpack that fully, but do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now for the second option. This would be that the keys of the kingdom, the tying and the untying, right, of the things, is referring to the early church as seen in the book of Acts. And we know that that happened. We know that's true because God directed Peter to take the keys of the kingdom, not to bring the kingdom in. We're not living in the kingdom, okay? Despite what you hear, we're not in the kingdom, okay? We are citizens of the kingdom. Peter has opened the doors for people to get into the kingdom, but the kingdom's not come. And so we see with Peter where God directs Peter to unlock the doors of the kingdom. First, how? For the Samaritans. He unlocks that door, opens it up, and then in come the Samaritans. And it's like, what? What's going on here? Nobody thought this was happening. We thought the kingdom was just for the Jews. And then what happens after that? What key unlocks another door? Well, that's for the Gentiles. And it goes to us Gentile dogs. Praise God. We can enter the kingdom. That's what Jews viewed Gentiles as. They called them Gentile dogs, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, during this early launch of the early church, we see them binding and loosing a whole bunch of things that were quite important. They wrote half of our Bible. That's, that's some pretty important binding and loosing of things, is it not? Of course it is. Now, the binding and loosing stuff, is this bossing heaven around? Right? If we declare things on earth, as so many TV 
whatever self-proclaimed prophets do. I declare, you know, that kind of stuff. Can we do that? And then heaven's like, oh, they, oh, they declare. We better get on board with that. And let's, boom, it's done. Is that what this text is saying? No. Which is why I'm going to read us what the NASB says, the New American Standard Version. I think they get this right. Here's what it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth, and look at the way this is worded, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That's a really important way to say it, because that's actually what the Greeks do, and I'm not, we're going to leave that alone today. But do you see what that's saying? Whatever you bind and loose on earth shall have, shall have already been binded and loosed in heaven. Heaven's the initiator, actually, if we read it rightly and understand the, the tense of which this verbs the, or the, the Greek words are being used here. And that is very, very different than what the modern-day prophets are saying, isn't it? Very different. We saw this during COVID. People getting on TV saying, I bind you, COVID-19. Well, it must not have been a very tight bound. So, uh, and, and it's because it was no binding at all. For heaven hadn't bound that. Heaven actually sovereignly decreed that that would come. Nothing happens on this planet without heaven's understanding, knowing, and backing to some degree. So uh, they reverse this entirely to basically say, don't question us. We can bind and loose. We are God's anointed prophets. Don't touch God's anointed. Have you heard that before? <laughs> Uh, it has nothing to do with this passage at all. And I know many of you I've talked to who have been under, at one point in your life, dangerous false teaching like this that leads to all sorts of other dangerous false teaching. That's not what it's saying here, though. And so we have to get this right. The determination of binding and loosing comes from heaven, not us. Say it again. The determination of binding and loosing comes from heaven, not us. Ephesians 2 What does it say? That we would walk in the good works that who prepared? God beforehand for us to walk in. Okay? There's one king, and it ain't you, and it's not me. It's King Jesus, and we know what we are? We're his ambassadors. We are his ambassadors, and ambassadors, their job is to take the message of the king, and what is that message? It's the gospel, and deliver it to the recipients who need it desperately. As a follower of Christ, as an ambassador of the king, I can bind and loose. How? If somebody comes to me and they say, you know what, I think Jesus was a good teacher, I can bind and say, you are in your sins and headed towards eternal destruction. Why? Because heaven has decreed that already. It has have been decreed, how that verse put it, right? If somebody comes to me and says, I have put my faith and trust in Christ, and I am taking up my cross and following him. I am shedding the things of this world in order that I might gain Christ, as Paul talks about. I can loose them from their sins and declare what heaven has declared. And that's what we do as a church, and we're going to look a lot more closely at this when we get to Matthew 18, where it talks about the binding and loosing that goes on with church discipline. Okay, fire hose is done. Everybody still awake? Okay. What about that part in verse 20 where Jesus tells them not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah? That's kind of strange. I thought he wanted them to go into all the world and preach the gospel as he does, you know, 10 chapters later in Matthew 28. Why is he telling them here not to? Look at what happened in this text. Two seconds ago, Jesus turns to Peter. He says, good job, Peter. You got it. And keep your mouth shut, please. Don't tell anyone. It's kind of strange. And then, well, actually not and then. I'll tell you what this is about. What's all this about? It's about the cross. That's why. Because immediately after he tells them not to tell anyone, he brings up the cross. He brings up the suffering, the crucifixion that was coming for him in verses 20 through 21. And how does Jesus respond to this? He responds how everybody responds to the idea of suffering and pain. I don't want that. No, I don't want to go through that. And he responds how everyone, pretty much everyone, in his day would have responded to the idea of the Messiah being a suffering servant. What? A suffering servant? No. Messiah is a conquering king. He's here to conquer my problems and my enemies, which right now is Rome, and you need to get them out of here. 
And so when Jesus says, I am the Messiah, you're right, Peter. I am the Son of the living God, and I'm here to die. Peter says, forbid it, Lord. No, this shall never happen to you. In which Jesus responds in verse 23, get behind me, Satan. And again, I like how the NASB puts this. You are a stumbling block for me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Well, that escalated quickly, right? With the Pharisees, like, I mean, Jesus gets pretty direct with them. I mean, at one point he takes out like a whip and he goes in and starts going to town. At other times, he calls them whitewashed tombs. But you know what he never called them? The devil. And yet Peter gets the most harsh rebuke of all. He's like, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That's harsh. Why does Jesus go from praising Peter for his confession and calling him a rock to now saying that he's a stumbling rock for him or a stumbling block? Right? First he says, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church upon this. Then he says, you're a stumbling rock. Get out of my way. You see what the contrast here? And the answer is because Peter's mind wasn't on the mission. What was his mind set on? The things of this world. The things of man, not of God. Peter, like the devil in Matthew chapter 4, was tempting Jesus in a very specific way. And how was he tempting him? He was tempting him by saying, you can have the kingdom without the cross. You can have it. Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go through the cross. I'll give all this to you. And that's what Peter was saying. Jesus, you don't, you don't need the cross. Heaven, Lord, heaven forbid this. God forbid this. But here's the thing. There is no heavenly kingdom for us without the agony of the cross. And so as a church, we preach what Paul preached. We preach Christ crucified. We preach the foolishness of the gospel, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. And yet, sadly today, so many churches, I'm putting scare quotes, why not, do not preach Christ crucified, do they? Not even close. They preach a watered-down, just-say-yes-to-Jesus gospel. That gospel will not save you. They preach a seeker-sensitive gospel, which tells people about all the good news with none of the bad. And why don't they include the bad? Well, that's just going to hurt people's feelings. Who wants to hear, you know, who wants to come together on Sunday and sing, as Martin Luther wrote, such a worm as I? Who wants to do that? Well, let's just take that part out. Let's just skip to the end. You know, the last chapter is usually the best anyways. Who wouldn't want to say yes to a God, an all-powerful God of the universe, loving you perfectly just as you are? So let's sing just as I am. Why not? That fits. Who doesn't want a God who will give us all of the desires of our heart if we just pay a little bit of lip service here and there to him? Why on earth would I say no to that? And they wouldn't say no to that kind of gospel because that kind of gospel isn't the true gospel because it's a gospel that is completely devoid of the cross, which is a cross that we must pick up and carry in order to be Christ's disciples. Look at verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In the Roman times, when a convicted criminal was being taken to be crucified, what were they forced to carry? The cross. Their cross. And why? Because it was a visible demonstration showing publicly that this rebel who had been opposing the Roman government was under their submissive rule. And so by carrying their cross, they showed that their will had been broken, they had been defeated under the Roman kingdom's mighty power. And so too, church, does it go the same for us? As followers of Christ, we pick up our cross to show the world that the rebellion of our hearts has been defeated. 
It has been defeated by heaven's sovereign rule. And we are now in complete submission to the king. Not in complete submission to my job. Not in submission to the loved ones of my life. Not in submission to money or things, sex, drugs, whatever. No. I pick up my cross. And I follow Christ. Because Christ is my king. Not these other things. And remarkably... When we pick up our cross and we follow Christ, yes, we will face death, whether that be through persecution, famine, or sword, or whatever. But none of that's going to overcome us, as Romans 8 talks about. None of that can actually truly destroy us. Not really. Why? Because Christ has overcome death for us. He has overcome the grave. So, too, all those who put their faith in Christ will also rise as he rised. And when we rise, we will one day stand before Christ, not to receive the wrath of a holy God, but the infinite love of a loving God. This is why Jesus told Peter in verse 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail. And I'm sure many of you have heard very flashy sermons about how we're going to conquer hell's armies because of this text. But that makes no sense. Uh, No one attacks with defensive gates. (laughs) Do they? No. You don't take the gates. If you've got gates like hell does, right? You don't take your gates and be like, let's go get them, guys. No, that's not what it's talking about. Hell is actually not even a great translation. The better one is Hades or Sheol, as we see in the Old Testament. And what is Hades? What is Sheol? It's the place of the dead. And what it's talking about then is the place of the dead, which has its gates around it to keep the dead in, isn't going to prevail over Christ's church, who will take up their cross and follow him to their deaths. It's not going to prevail. Which is why Paul could confidently say in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of the church isn't to preach some watered-down, bloodless, tame, neutered, timid Christianity. And so if you know someone who's in a church where that's what's going on, get them out of there. And you can drive down, I'm not trying to call churches out by name, but you can drive down our highway within a 45-minute radius and you can absolutely find a plethora of churches doing just that. Not preaching Christ crucified. Not preaching the blood of Jesus which washes away our sins. And so if we really love these people who think they're on the path to heaven, who think that they are going to receive the kingdom, we need to tell them, get out of there. You're being fed poison. Do we steal sheep in this church? Absolutely we do. If they are in a church that's doing just that, we will steal them and their friends if we can. And many of you have come from said churches where that's what was going on. And you come here, why? Because the personality of the preacher? Absolutely not. Uh, Because of the music? That's nice. We like that. But no, because we want the word of God. We want to be fed the word of scripture, which is able to save and nourish our souls. So the purpose of the church, we must preach the cross of Christ. We must also then preach loudly and clearly that the son of the living God has come. He has defeated death upon a cross, and because he has, though we die, we shall live and rise forever with him. The path to that, there's no way around this. It absolutely involves denying ourselves. It absolutely involves picking up our cross, which is suffering, right? It's talking about death, and so if we must do that, we must be willing to have, like, embrace our own death if that's what it takes to follow Christ, then what does that mean when it comes to the other littler things? Like our jobs, our careers, all the other things we talked about. Well, certainly that's on the table too, is it not? Of course it is. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So the question is, what will you give? A little bit of your time? 
A little bit of your money? A little bit of your words for that prayer you said when you were seven? I can tell you this, it's not enough. It's absolutely not enough. For as Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does this describe you? Does this describe us? I'm not sure it does. I look around at all of the professing Christians that we bump into, and I'm afraid to say I think the American church is actually the greatest mission field that we face right now. 30% of evangelical Christians don't even believe in the deity of Christ. What other false damning doctrine has crept in? I think the American church is the greatest mission field, not the atheist, not the agnostic, not the unbelievers, not those of different competing faiths, but the church at large. And why do I say that? Because so many, when it comes to the idea of suffering, even just a little bit for Christ, for their faith, to follow him, they outright refuse. It's entirely off the table. Why? Because i got a cabin to go to. I've got a career to take care of. I've got a family that I love and to nourish and care for. I don't have time for this cross business. And if that's you, you've gaining the whole world but forfeiting your soul. Why? Because you have your mind set upon the things of man, not the things of God. And the things of man is a path that leads to forfeiting your soul. Hear me when I say this. We're not talking about legalism here. Okay, we're not saying if you want heaven, you've got to do enough. You've got to do the scale system. You've got to do more good than bad. That's not what I'm talking about. So if you hear me saying that, remove that from your mind. This isn't works-based salvation. We are justified. Hear me when I say this. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, with a big capital B-U-T attached right to that, which would add, though we are not saved by works, we are saved by a faith that works. And it's a faith that is willing to do the work of following Christ by picking up our cross, if that's what it means. And why? Why do we gladly embrace our death for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus? It's not because we're masochists. It's not because we're trying to gain salvation through our efforts. You can't do it. It's not enough. Why? It's because our hearts have been changed. We've been giving, our hearts of stone have been replaced with a heart of flesh, which now loves the things of Christ, not the things of this world. Yes, it's a battle, don't misunderstand me, but ultimately, what is our true desire? It's Jesus. It's to see him coming. It's to be in the presence of his glory. And so what on earth wouldn't I trade for that? Yes, take my job. Yes, take my family. Yes, take my career. Yes, take even my life. Take this world, but give me Jesus, as we often sing. The truth is, when our heart's been changed to see the beauty of the risen Christ, we'll trade anything for it. And so that trading of whatever for it doesn't save us, but you know what? That's the proof that we have been saved. We'll trade anything for it, including our very lives, because we know that one day soon, and this is our glorious hope, that Christ will return to bring us life everlasting. This leads us to our final point here. To be a purpose-driven church, we must embrace Christ's identity, his mission, and third, his return. The Son of Man, verse 27, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. We're out of time here, so I'll just keep this short and I'll say this. This verse tells us Christ is coming back to do what? Repay each person for whether or not they said a prayer when they were seven? No. Repay each person for what they have done. For those who have not denied themselves, they have not picked up their cross and followed Christ out of the new desires of their heart, which is regenerated by grace through faith in God, what are they going to face? People who haven't done that, who haven't had that new heart experience and consequently picked up their cross and followed Christ, they're going to face an eternity of God's all-powerful judgment in a place called hell. 
for true followers of Christ. At the same time, those who have, by God's grace, more or less picked up their cross and followed him, uh, they have rewards on the table. Rewards that we can gain for all of eternity. Crowns, positions of rule, unspeakable joy that we cannot even fathom, which on one level comes to us all, but not equally. It comes in degrees to our faithfulness here in this life. And so, you see the ditches we're trying to avoid today? We're trying to avoid the ditch of legalism, which is do more, be better, chase after God, and then you'll get a, you'll, the reward will be salvation. We're ignoring that, but at the same time, we're, just, we're stomping all over the, the ditch of cheap grace and being like, this is garbage. This will not save your soul. We are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. So my question for you is this. Are you ready for Christ's return? If so, prove it. Don't give me words. Show me your actions. Yes, your sin-fallen, broken actions, which will certainly not even come close to measuring to the holiness of Christ. But prove it by your life. Are you living for the things of this world or the things of the world to come? I like how Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he once said this. He said, when Christ calls us, he bids us to come and die. What kind of call is that? Who wants to sign up for that? Well, his disciples do. For if you want to be his disciple, you must take up your cross and follow him. Not this world, not your job, not your career, not all these other good things that are idols when they're made into ultimate things. We will come and die. Why? So that we might truly live. And that living starts in this life as we follow Christ. And the things of this world don't even come close comparison to the joy, even the small glimpses of joy that we get now as followers of Jesus, which will one day, when the clouds roll back, will reveal God's glory and the full joy that waits for us. Matthew 16.25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you approaching the church rightly? Are you approaching the gospel as you should for its true purpose? May we as a church faithfully fulfill our purpose by embracing our God-given mission, which is to preach Christ's identity, to carry out his mission, and longfully and anxiously and excitedly look for his return. Father, I thank you for this passage. Lord, I just pray that you would use this text to encourage your believers to encourage your disciples not to heap shame upon them and fear, unhealthy fear, but a healthy fear that leads them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling as this serves as a reminder to them of the precious blood that was spent for them and a reminder to them what their true heart truly wants. Lord, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, even with our regenerated hearts. So we ask that this text, for your people for your children, would be a text of encouragement. Father, I pray for the one here today who is not your child, who is living for the things of this world. I pray that this text would crush them. Not so they leave and live their life in guilt and misery, but that in that crushing they would turn and look to Christ, who alone can powerfully save. And he saves us not by the works we have done, but the works that he has done. And so, Father, we praise you that by grace through faith, we wretched sinners, such a worm as even I, can come before you, profess faith in Christ, and know that all our sins are paid for, all of them are forgiven. And out of that and that alone can we only go on then to pick up our cross and follow Christ. Help us to count the cost. Help us to gloriously proclaim the mission of the gospel to a world which includes churches around us that don't preach it. And Father, may we anxiously live for and long for your return. So we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?